Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody, it's Jared. Welcome to another episode of All Things Crime. I am your host, Jared, and I have Vic Ferrari with me. Vic is retired NYPD. I got to read this. And and Vic, welcome to the show. And all of you that are listening or watching, please hit the subscribe button and the bell so you never miss an episode. But Vic, to bring you on, you know, doing a little research on you, as you would expect, of course, I came across this description. And I think this might give a little insight to the, the watchers and listeners about who you are. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we can we can delve into this. So wanted to read this. It says about the author, Vic Ferrari, author of Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die, is a retired 20-year veteran of the New York City Police Department, a Bronx resident for over 40 years. He now splits his time between sunny Florida and his timeshare in North Korea. That must be interesting. He lives with this Irish uh, wolfhound puppy who follows him everywhere, including into the bathroom. Sounds like my wife and the kids. He enjoys writing, cooking, and managing a co-ed softball team filled with unhappy, complaining miscreants. This past summer, he he fulfilled his childhood dream of throwing out the first pitch of a minor league baseball game under an assumed name. All right. So with that introduction, Vic, I guess uh, you need to kind of maybe explain some of that. Sure. My name isn't Vic Ferrari, but I write under a pen name, so... A friend of mine had asked, he was running some event at a minor league baseball stadium, and he said, uh, you want to throw out the first pitch? I said, sure. If I could throw out the pitches off the Vic Ferrari, he goes, yeah, I don't give a shit. So <laughs> they called out my name. I marched out to the mound, and I threw out the first pitch of a game, and everybody clapped, and nobody knew who the hell I was. Uh, I don't live in North Korea. I live in sunny Florida, as I was telling you off camera. I've written six books. In the back of, I always struggle with what to write about the author. So I, I kind of make it into like a joke. I always throw something in there. Like I, I have a timeshare in North Korea. Another one blurb I wrote in the back of the book is I insist on you taking off your shoes when entering my home and I split my time between sunny Florida and Papua New Guinea. So I just put it in there to see if the readers are paying attention. Well, hopefully uh, some of them do. Do you get much feedback when you when you throw that out there? Believe it or not, there's a lot of people that believe that shit. And I, I, I always think it's funny because- you know, up until a couple of years ago, we, we were like mortal enemies with North Korea. And now, again, now we're not really good friends with them again. But, you know, why in a million years would they, you know, be leasing out timeshares? So, yeah, there's a lot of naive people out there. But I'm going to keep putting it out there until somebody catches on what I'm doing. <laughs> Fair enough. So you spent 40 years in the Bronx. And for those of us that can recognize a, a New York accent. It's fairly strong with you. It's uh, all, all of my other guests from New York have kind of had the same thing. I don't know if you know uh, Christian Flood. NYPD? Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, retired a couple of years ago. You know what it is? New York City Police Department at any given time has between thirty and 40,000 members. So, I mean, although it's happened where someone has just thrown out some generic name and I go, oh, yeah, I knew that guy or I knew that girl, but no. I, I don't. I don't know. Okay. 
Yeah, some of the other um, guests I've had from NYPD are um, Zeke Arkham, as well as um, Scott Wagner. So, no? No, unfortunately, no. Okay, well, anyway, maybe uh, someday we'll have a, an all-things crime reunion of NYPD officers that have been on the show, and we'll we'll get everybody together. I can apps down there with you in Florida somewhere. Well, I can absolutely guarantee you if you had like a panel with me and a couple of those guys retired from the NYPD, it would look like the Brady Bunch with the little heads. And I guarantee you within five minutes, we would know people in common and know, or if we didn't know people in common, we would know like famous pains in the asses that worked for the department that at some point in our careers, we all had to deal with. So yeah, I, I guarantee you there'd be some form of familiarity within five minutes. Yeah, fair enough. Any any kind of a small community. I mean, 30,000, 40,000 plus who knows how many have rotated through there in the last 20 years, but uh, it's still a tight-knit community and for very good reason. I mean, I, I have a military background and so, you know, anybody that's in the military, especially the Army, which is where I served, you know, you just automatically have a camaraderie. You, you know people and it's yeah, like you said, you may not know, have run into them specifically, but you you know people that know people. So love it, man. And uh, there's there's just something special about the entire law enforcement community that uh, you guys have a camaraderie that is really special. And um, yeah, in many ways, I'm I'm kind of jealous of it to be honest. Yeah, I mean, within the department, yeah, I. There is a camaraderie, and then there's also a camaraderie with different law enforcement agencies where you could pick up the phone and call someone that works in another agency and like, hey, I need help with this case, or could you look into this for me, or could I, I'd really appreciate it if you could do this for me. You'd save me a day of having to drive up there. And for the most part, everybody plays nice with each other. Every now and then, you get a pain in the ass that won't, or an agency for whatever reason is, you know, different agencies they're like fat kids holding the candy bars and they don't want to give you one they're sitting on something they really don't want to give away that for whatever reason and you run into that from time to time with different agencies of different people in law enforcement but for the most part i mean everybody plays nice and gets along yeah yeah absolutely especially when you're when you're working on specific cases you know if there's um i've just known how many cases that have started in one place and ended in a completely different jurisdiction. And so if you don't play nice together, then a lot of times the crime doesn't get solved. And that's that's really what matters. Yeah. And I worked in auto theft. So like my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on stolen vehicles for resale, a lot of mob cases, but a vehicle can go anywhere, right? So a lot of times we did multi-state agent, multi-country agencies with stolen I had a stolen vehicle uh, that was imported from this African country called Cotivar. It was brought in from by a diplomat. We had a diplomat driving around in lower Manhattan with a stolen Mercedes. And I had to work through channels to find out, was this vehicle really stolen or was it a failure to cancel? How the freak did this car get into the country? Then once I determined, yeah, it is stolen, how am I going to get it back? My first instinct was to go to Mercedes, get a key cut and steal the car back. And I went to the State Department. They're like, no, 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 please. You're going to start an international incident with this shit. So what they wound up doing is they brought in, it was the diplomat's husband was the dirtbag. And uh, you know she showed up with the car and, and could not have been more apologetic. This is a big misunderstanding. Please, please take the fucking car. 
And we did. And, uh, you know, was your husband around? Because we'd really like to talk to him. And obviously I couldn't have because he enjoyed the same protections as a diplomat because he was married to her. Oh, no, unfortunately, he's out of the country. Of course he is. And, you know, the car goes back to France. A couple of weeks later, I get a phone call from the husband. And, you know, now he kind of came out of whatever mouse hole he was hiding in. And he's pounding his chest, making a big deal with his wife standing there going on around. You had no right to take my car, blah, 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 blah. The funny thing was when I spotted him driving the stolen car, he was with another woman that was pregnant. I told him over the phone. I said, you know, what I find ironic is I go, well, did your girlfriend have the baby? And you could her a pin drop. And uh, I says, because the woman I saw you with at the Mercedes dealership that time isn't your wife. And he goes, thank you, detective. He couldn't get off the phone quick enough. So he had he had some skeletons in his closet that he didn't want to he didn't want to play he didn't want to play with me anymore. Once I kind of let him know that while we were surveilling him, we knew we had a pregnant girlfriend, and that was the end of that. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of these diplomats are just cream of the crop. You know, they're some of the best people that you can possibly run into. So, uh, not not uh, overly surprised about that story. No, and and it, it's funny because. Something you know that old expression you get you get further with sugar than you do vinegar. I'll give you another example of something like that. Early in my career, we're in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx, very industrial area, factories, and after five o'clock at night, the place shuts down and it becomes pimps and hoes. So you've got prostitutes and pimps, and you got the Johns that drive around and they pick up the girls for a quickie and uh, pulled over this BMW for a taillight out. And, you know, the driver starts getting mouthy immediately. He's an attorney. He tells me, I know why you pulled me over. You see Mercedes or BMW in a poppish neighborhood. You think you could shake the trees. So my partner and I go, and he's got a prostitute in the car, which is even funny, right? So my partner and I go back to the car and I'm writing him a ticket. My partner goes, you believe this fucking guy? I says, I got him by the balls. He doesn't even know it, right? So we walk back to the car and he starts giving me shit again. And I notice he's got a wedding ring on. And he goes, um, I need your name and number. I'm going to be making this a big complaint against you. And I said, oh, that's fine. Here you go, Ferrari, give my shield number and everything. And he goes, this is an abuse of power. I said, no. I says, I'm going to show you an abuse of power. Get out. So I make him and the prostitute get out of the car. While the prostitute gets out of the car, my partner starts taking down all her information, name, date of birth, pimp, et cetera, street corner. And I said, here's the deal. I says, you're getting this ticket for the uh, tail line out. I says, if you make that complaint, I says, I'm going to find your number in the phone book, dating myself. I'm going to call your wife up in, I think it was Scarsdale or Hartsdale, and I'm going to tell her what you were doing down here. I said, if on the off chance, I said, you're not listening to the phone book, I will pick up this crackhead and drive up to your house within a week and have her explain to your wife what you were doing down here, down in the point at 11 o'clock at night. Oh my God, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. He gets on his hands and knees. He's begging me forgiveness. I go, I guess we understand each other. He goes, yeah, yeah, no problem. Never heard another fucking thing about it. Oh, uh, all right. Well, yeah, you again. You worked in in that department for ten years. Yeah, I bounced around the job a lot. Like I started off as a patrolman. I worked at a DUI unit. I worked at a plainclothes unit, an anti crime unit, going after pickpockets, robbery in progress, etc. Then I spent about a year and a half in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division doing buy and bust operations. I wasn't an undercover. I was an investigator you know, get search warrants or rolling in after the undercover made a buy. Although I did make a couple of small time buys and I ghosted a lot, which means you're kind of watching the undercovers on foot to make sure nobody tries to rob them or screw around with them. Okay, man, boy, that, uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to understand how, like you said, you know, NYPD's, you know, 30, 40,000 officers, the largest 
law enforcement agency in the world. And you're dealing with what, 8 million people that are permanent residents. And then, you know, who knows how many, well, how many people come into that city every day? I don't know, but it's closer to 9 million people. And oh God, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I don't remember the number, but someone posted like how many people use the subway a year and it's like in the billions. So it's probably over a million people yeah, a, a day use the subway. Just to put that into perspective, how populated. So you, you have to you have to fluctuate. Yeah. So dealing with say ten million people average per day, pretty much anything that can happen will happen there in that city. Well, yeah. So now your career started when? Nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. So you were kind of in the middle of the worst crime rate ever recorded there in NY in New York City. So now based on everything I've, I've talked about with these other detectives and, and research that I've done back in the early nineties, my understanding is the worst year, I think it was 91 or 92. Sounds like 2,300 murders that, that year. Oh yeah. So what, what is that? Like uh, four, five a day? No, six a day. Yeah. It just depends. I mean, you had incidents like the happy land social club where that Guy went back to a social club after getting smacked around. He got thrown out. He set the place on fire. I think 87 people died in one shot. That That's ruled a homicide or, you know, shootouts. And yeah, I mean, it was, um, let's put it this way. Like when you would go down to the morgue sometimes to identify our body, well, it wasn't like an episode of Quincy where there's one guy, you know, with the body on a slab and a lab coat, you know, writing shit down. It, I tell the story all the time when I was in the police academy, they bring us down to the morgue. It was like a jiffy loop. It's like an eight bay, you know, garage. And I mean, there's guys cutting with wizard tools, soaring the back of people's skulls and pulling their brains out, weighing it in the produce. They had the old fashioned produce scales, like your mom would weigh a head of lettuce before she purchased it. They're weighing body parts and making jokes about it. It was like, I just did it. Like, it was so crazy. It looked, I th- it was like being in a movie. It just, that's just how fucking crazy it is. And, at the far end, I'll never forget, like, you had six or seven autopsies going. At the far end, there was some kid that had got shot up the night before, and you got this old, crusty uh, medical examiner. He's got this tool, like a needle nose, and he's pulling bullets out of this guy's, and a holes out of this guy and dumping him in a metal tray, and he's saying shit to some guy that's writing stuff down, and hanging over his shoulder is this old homicide detective who's got eating an Egg McMuffin and drinking a coffee, and he says, well, what, what do you think? And the medical examiner turns to him and goes, suspicious suicide. And we couldn't stop laughing. I mean, it was just like the guy is hogtied and shot like a million times. And, you know, one guy's eating an egg with muffin and the other guy's laughing. Another time I'm sitting in an apartment with a DOA and the medical examiner comes in, drinking a cup of coffee and eating a slice of pizza. Like just kind of walks in, disheveled, shirt untucked. He's eating a slice of pizza. He's like, yeah, he goes, this is like the fucking fourth one I've done this hour. So, yeah, yeah, no, people were dropping like flies back then. Uh, that's crazy. I, I've met a couple of Emmys in my day, and uh, those guys are an interesting breed, man, just to be able to do that, you know, constantly dealing with, I mean, here they their, their entire training, basically, you know, what, 12 years of school is, is all designed around helping people stay alive, and then they, they go to become an Emmy, and then, you know, basically they're determining cause of death. And I know, they make like a hard left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a different direction than what what they would 
had been training for a long time. So sometimes you wonder what kind of trauma they went under in order to go, you know, go that direction. You know, I, I think it's, some of it is trauma, but different people have different skill sets to handle different things. Like a lot of times people ask me on these shows, you know, about my experience at Ground Zero 9-11 or like the things that I saw, do I have nightmares? And I say, I sleep just fine. You know, it's, I think to be successful in that line of work, being a medical examiner or a cop, you've got to be able to deal with things and then compartmentalize it and say, okay, well, I'm fine. At the end of the day, I'm okay. You know what I mean? I saw some terrible shit, but I'm fine and I'm going to get on with my life. It's like, I, I'm not haunted by any of this stuff. I'm really not. And I'm guessing, you know, with some of these medical examiners, it's the same mindset. Oh, I'm sure. I've actually interviewed a number of, uh, and I'm good friends with these guys too, some of these uh, criminal psychologists where they're like, you know, the most of the time what cops are dealing with is what Dr. Lee Meller, I don't know if you know him, but he's a, one of the leading guys in like serial killings and rapes and things. And he described what most officers go through as the sewer, meaning that all the blood and the guts and the, the drugs and needles and and just the filth that, that uh, you see on a daily basis. And, and a lot of it is because of that's where people choose to live. And some of it is just people are shot up and that's gory and traumatizing. And, and that's kind of the sewer. And that's kind of on the horizontal axis. So then on the vertical axis, though, and I, I think this is where some of those guys that can't really compartmentalize kind of run into problems is what he calls the abyss. And the abyss is that you know, vertical level where it's uh, going up and down and it cross sections with the sewer. And that's kind of where the why is answered. And a lot of times there is no why. So you could try to delve into why people do certain things when they're committing crimes and, and doing heinous things to other people. And, you know, you, you look at it and you say, how could somebody actually do that to another human being? But there, a lot of times there is no answer. It's just, you know, they impulsively decided to, you know, rob somebody and it went bad and then they ended up shooting each other and who knows what, you know, what happens after that. But the crazy thing is I, I, I really like what you just said. You know, you compartmentalize it, you look at yourself and you say, am I okay today? And then you drive on. You have to, I mean, and I know, I know people and I've run into people, you know, that I worked with or I knew and they never got over certain things. You know, and, and you know, I'm not judging them for it, but they were, and I, I really don't want to get too close to the target, but I, I know a couple of people who were involved in a couple of things that they were never the same again. They just weren't. Their whole, they were just a different person after the shit hit the fan with one thing or another. So as, as we get into just your career, I, I mean, you've described a couple of um, run-ins with different types of people. So if you were asked, like on Thanksgiving, you know, you're around the family and, you know, especially there in North Korea, if you're hanging out with those guys, then <laughs> what, what is it? What kind of story are you, are you asked to tell over and over? Oh God. You know, I mean, when I got into writing books, I, I realized the, the only way to sell books is to do podcast interviews and radio interviews. So I do between five and 10 interviews a week. And I get asked, it's funny, what's the craziest story? What's the goriest story? It just depends on what you're looking for. You know what I mean? It's, um, I, I've had things happen to me where I, you know, you think something's going one way and it's like, oh shit, 
it's it's something totally different. Like you get called to one thing. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.